This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to a special edition of our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of save investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. I'm joined by two of my colleagues, uh, Jesper Cole, Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree in Japan, Jeffrey Winnegar, who is a Director of Asset Allocation at Wisdom Tree. Uh, the three of us probably are some of the, the, the favorite topics we have. I know, Jesper, you've been in Japan 30 years, and uh, so that's obviously close to your heart, but Jeff and I also love talking Japan and still one of the most interesting countries that we're following. So thanks, Jesper, for, for taking some time with us today. Great. Thank you for having me. So, Jesper, uh, tell us a little bit on the situation locally. You know, I, I've been watching the the COVID updates. Um, Japan seemed like early on in the situation they were going to get some outbreaks being close to China. But you guys have been managing this incredibly well. Uh, maybe just give us your perspective on the ground, what you think. No, if you look at the uh, at the pandemic, you're absolutely right. I mean, Japan, uh, you know, has some of the lowest numbers, uh, both in absolute terms, in terms of people infected, as well as, uh, you know, people dying, um, you know, from the uh, pandemic. I think there's fewer uh, than 800 deaths uh, in the entire country. And that's despite the fact that the virus actually came very early. And it's also somewhat surprising uh, because, we know that, uh, unfortunately, elderly people get affected much harsher. Um, and, uh, you know, given that, of course, Japan society is, you know, relatively old. I mean, you remember one of my favorite statistics, you know, um, uh, almost one in three people is over the age of 70 now. Um, and so as a result of that, you would have thought, oh, my God, Japan is going to be hit very hard. But uh, the numbers just simply don't bear that out. Um, and at the end of the day, it's probably because the overall health conditions in Japan um, are very good. As you know, there's also very little poverty here. The quality of food and water and the air is very, very good. So these are some of the factors that, uh, you know, potentially have attributed, uh, you know, to this good outcome here. And then over and above the management of the pandemic, um, you know, the economic management here, um, you know, has sort of been um, you know, very pragmatic. There was no big panic, no great political grandstanding over what should or should not be done. Uh, Prime Minister Abe immediately um, convened an expert team 
and uh, managing, um, you know, the lives versus uh, livelihood, uh, um, you know, debate, I think that they've done a very good job by creating this gradual soft lockdown into the country. Um, and now we're beginning to emerge out of that soft lockdown. You may have seen that the uh, economic emergency measures have actually been eased off, um, you know, in the majority of provinces. And it's widely expected that uh, Tokyo is uh, going to be opened up completely, um, you know, by the beginning of next month. Well, Jeremy, this is, the, this is Jeff, and I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm listening to Jesper's comments, and I'm thinking, and Jesper, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I just think about Japan, it, it must be, if not number one, the number two in geriatric medicine the world over, almost no argument, and, and correct me if, if that's a mistaken statement. And the other side of it um, that I think is pretty interesting, and, and, and something that jumps off the page when I read Jesper's writing um, is a thesis, and yes, I'd like to see if you can elaborate on this a little bit, the thesis being that in terms of the labor situation, because there is such a, a small quantity, this is the this has been the issue for some time with Japan, there's, there's hardly any youthful laborers left, that there's a possibility that in, in prior crises where you saw, for example, the Greeks or the Italians saw um, youth unemployment go spiking sky high to, to levels that devastate a society, that perhaps it could be Japan that muddles through this the best uh, among the developed economies. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I mean, if, if, if I mean, I, I say, you know, I, I do want to be reborn as a 25-year-old Japanese right now, um, <laughs> you know, because, you know, look, I mean, uh, uh, the demographics, the maths is just straightforward. Every year, um, the age cohort 25 to 35-year-old every year drops by about 250,000 people. Um, you know, so the excess demand for labor is a big structural issue here. Um, and you find that, uh, you know, of course, there's a cyclical hit given that, uh, you know, the global economy shut down, given that large parts of the Japanese economy shut down. Of course, there is going to be a cyclical uptick uh, in the unemployment rate, um, you know, but uh, it's nowhere near as dramatic or as harsh as you're seeing it elsewhere. I mean, specifically, if you look at the data, um, you know, even, um, you know, in the, in the month of March, which right now is the last one we've got data for, there's still a 39% excess demand for labor relative to the supply. Um, and for all intents and purposes, you know, the restart that we are seeing in the global economy, the war for talent, and as a result of that, the relatively secure purchasing power, um, you know, of the Japanese people, uh, you know, that makes me very, very very constructive uh, on the outlook for domestic demand here in general, consumer spending in particular. So, Jesper, when, when you think about the lockdown, what, what measures were particularly relevant and, and effective? Is there something that Japan did that was, that you think, the, the most impactful? And then as you think about opening up, you know, you mentioned Tokyo maybe open up very soon. Like, how, how do you think that that's going to work through the system? Um, I, I personally think that, the, you know, the best thing that uh, Japan did is that both, uh, you know, the political debate and the media debate was just always, um, you know, held in a very, very pragmatic level. And as you know, you know, Prime Minister Abe de facto, you know, does not really have any opposition. They've got a two-thirds supermajority in parliament, um, you know, and, uh, you know, the moment it became clear that, uh, you know, this is, uh, you 
you know, not just a normal flu, um, you know, but something a bit more serious, um, you know, the country really pulled together. And remember, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, Japan does have, you know, uh, a, a great exposure, unfortunately, to, to sort of natural disasters with earthquakes, uh, with typhoons. So as a result of that, also the overall reaction from whether it's the media or whether it's even the blogsphere, um, you know, you find it's just, it's just much calmer and much more pragmatic um, and always focusing on, okay, this is a tough time. Uh, we're going to get through this. What do we need to do to to make sure that we actually not just get through it, but actually begin an investment process into the future. And you may have seen, I mean, this is, this is something that's, that's quite incredible. I mean, I, I sometimes quip that uh, Coronanomics is, uh, you know, doing the stuff that Abenomics was unable to do, which is changing cultural behavior, um, you know, within Japanese corporations. Because, you know, Japanese management, Japanese salary extremely resilient, extremely stubborn to implement change, and particularly extremely stubborn and resisting, um, you know, the digitalization of workflow processes. And that is now starting to, to go away. You find that, you know, the hanko, you know, the fact that everything, every document needs to have the chop of the corporation. Uh, big debate, even last year, no, this cannot be digitalized. Now with the corona crisis, boom, you know, uh, everybody agrees, yes, let's have a digital hanko. Um, and this whole um, participatory decision-making, bottom-up decision-making process, which was also done manually, that is now actually being automated. And I think the internal productivity at the firms, and whether it's Sony Corporation, whether it's Toyota Corporation, or whether it's small and medium-sized company, the change in corporate culture and actually embracing modern, digitalized uh, workflow, um, you know, that's, I think, going to lead to very, very strong strong productivity grows, you know, uh, uh, over the next couple of years. They don't have a choice. It's, uh, they got to do it. Um, <laughs> it. It's interesting, Jesper, when, when all the, the actions were taking around the world, you know, from the governments, the central banks, you know, Japan had, had been one of the larger balance sheets at the, at the central bank. Anything on, as you see, the measures uh, on, on Abe's side on sort of special packages, uh, anything to note, things that they were doing and, and how it's sort of interacting with what the Bank of Japan is doing, anything interesting there of late? Yeah, no, very, very important. Um, and as you know, I mean, Japan, you know, has, has been very early already since the mid-1990s, you know, doing the zero interest rate, um, you know, experiment. Uh, and actually, Japan already had three instances of what sometimes is called uh, helicopter money, you know, giving uh, gift certificates or consumer, you know, uh, uh, direct money, uh, you know, to the uh, to households. Um, but they found that, you know, this is easy on a sheet of paper and very difficult to actually get, you know, the liquidity created by the central bank 
out into the purchasing power of the private sector. And so immediately, um, you know, when the, uh, you know, immediately all um, policy measures were extremely well coordinated between the Bank of Japan and uh, the fiscal authorities and Prime Minister Abe. And uh, you will actually see in the next couple of days, um, you may have seen the Bank of Japan uh, as uh, tomorrow, they will hold an extraordinary policy meeting. And that's actually, um, you know, because uh, on Monday, uh, Prime Minister Abe instigated a new uh, support program for small companies, companies with fewer than 50 employees, and very likely the Bank of Japan will announce that they will provide the liquidity and credit backstop, um, you know, for that program to actually come through. So I think, you know, the bottom line is, um, you know, that at the end of the day, how do you get from monetary stimulus into the purchasing power of the private sector? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when the history of this is going to be going to be written, you find that, um, you know, in in Japan, the efficacy uh, of actually getting funds, um, you know, to the small and medium-sized companies, um, you know, that Japan is going to come out, uh, you know, very, very positively on that. And then the second thing, Jeremy, which is more relevant for sort of the going forward debate, um, you know, which is Prime Minister Abe, when they announced that a big uh, package, you know, the 20% of GDP equivalent package, um, you know, at the beginning of April, they made it very clear that uh, there will be two stages. Um, and the first one is the uh, emergency support. The second stage is incentives to invest in future growth, what they call the accelerator program. You want to stabilize uh, to counter the uh, loss of purchasing power from the, from the pandemic and from the lockdown. And then once the pandemic stabilizes, you want to give investment incentives in industries you know, um, where the government will stand behind you and wants you to, com uh, to invest. And whether that's data centers, whether that is, um, you know, um, a new public infrastructure in terms of, you know, additional healthcare investments coming through, you know, all these things are going to be very, very important because there's so much uncertainty um, that uh, providing a goal, where does the government uh, have your back? Uh, where do they see the investment opportunities and will support the investment opportunities into the future? That's going to be very important. So what I'm saying really is that Japan will shine by having an industrial policy policy to not just counter the pandemic, but to actually get us towards a brighter and better future. This is and this is so fascinating because one of the things that I've been thinking about with respect to Japan um, is, is really the collapse in the crude oil price as well. I mean, Japan uh, and a few peers, I, I could think of the Germans, I could think of the South Koreans as well, are on the other side of the oil trade, uh, the other side of the natural resource cur curse, right? You have natural resources in Central Africa and you're uh, almost doomed to it, perpetual poverty, whereas uh, a nation like Japan has no such natural resources. And so you end up with one of the, the most advanced civilizations in the world. And so now we've had this crude oil collapse. And, you know, with with respect to the reference that, that you made, Jesper, on the salaryman, um, to, to clarify for the listener, listener, this is a concept in Japan, the salaryman. You graduate from school and you are essentially in the same uh, corporation for, for life. And this has been a, an issue that's been an overhang over Japan for some time. It's part of the reason there has been this entrenched cultural conservatism. 
But the question is, is will that salary man mentality start to change with respect to some of the things that have been a ding on the case for Japanese equities for some time, namely the the conservatism from with respect to the cash on the balance sheet. I mean, I've been tweeting about how in 2019 cash was trash. The S&P 500 was up 31 percent. Um, but then again, a totally different story in 2020, where cash is suddenly what you want. And we were looking at the sector at the sector level. MSCI Japan beats the S&P 500 on the ratio between current assets and current liabilities in every sector except for one. Uh, you really need to be liquid. And if we can, you know, think about some of these concepts, suddenly you have a very liquid corporate Japan with a perpetual, uh, seemingly tax cut. Um, from a crude oil price that's in the basement. Yeah, that's that's very important. And I think, you know, the first on the oil price, on the terms of trade, um, you know, Japan is a huge net beneficiary of that. Um, I mean, I can see it here when I fill up my car, um, you know, basically it now costs me uh, literally about a third uh, of what it did at the end of last year, right? So the, the, the benefits, uh, you know, uh, are going to be immediate for Japan. But then there's the second effect, which I think is, uh, you know, being underestimated, which is, is, of course, that Japan's largest trading partner, which is the People's Republic of China, is also a huge beneficiary of lower energy and lower commodity prices. And as a result of that, you know, what you're seeing already, we know that the Chinese economy, um, you know, is already engaging in this V-shaped recovery. I mean, just look at the data. Car sales in the months of April were already positive year over year. And, of course, for a company like Toyota, uh, you know, for a company like Komatsu, you know, the, uh, the V-shaped recovery that we're getting in the People's Republic of China, um, you know, is an enormous support um, that actually is coming through here. And I think the bottom line is I actually think that Japan uh, is going to be one of the first countries with a very, very positive uh, uh, visibility of positive earnings momentum coming possibly as early as the um, as the April June quarter because of the benefits that you get from the People's Republic of China. I've just been you know in the last couple of days sort of making some phone calls to Japanese capital goods companies, and uh, you know they are uh, you know reporting orders from China up. 15, 20, 25 percent year over year, and this is you know uh, uh, the large capital goods companies, which are obviously in the uh, in the in the big export segment uh, of the Japanese economy. So you know this you know scenario um, you know of a V-shaped recovery because Japan is close to the People's Republic of China, almost 23 percent of the earnings of the topics companies um, are generated from selling to the People's Republic of China. Um, So that part already on recovery mode, if the United States economy, which is the second part, um, you know, where Japanese exporters generate their profits, if that starts to recover as well, you know, you're in for a very, very positive um, earnings surprise recovery uh, in Japan by the late summer, early autumn. Yes, I mean, this is one of the fascinating things. And I was just looking at performance year to date. Um, and, and, and it, you know, the, the, the pandemic started in China, yet China is outperforming broad emerging markets by, you know, a thousand basis points. Even if you just look at MSCI, and then if you do like any tech version of it, you're actually up on the year. Uh, and then, you know, the Japan is outperforming Europe by, 
even just MSCI Japan versus MSCI Europe up by about 700 basis points. Um, in Japan, small outperforming sort of broad international small sort of interesting you would think i mean japan has this reputation of the most cyclical of the cyclical global economy countries and it's sort of outperforming during a global depression i mean it's fascinating And, and this is the point, you know, that was made earlier about the big cash balances, right? I mean, you know, fine, um, you know, Japan uh, has been hoarding cash, um, you know, and now the question is, fine, that cash is the buffer that you want to get through the crisis. But more importantly, you are going to see Japanese management actually deploying that cash to invest in future growth. And, you know, already over the last two weeks, we've had several major examples of, uh, you know, Japanese large companies buying in uh, some of their subsidiaries, right? You saw the Sony Corporation, you know, for example, buying in, um, you know, their um, uh, Sony Finance, um, you know, because they, they are actually now deploying the cash, um, you know, to, uh, to consolidate their operations. Um, and to become better companies. And I believe that this wave of M&A activity, right, um, is going to be very, very strong here in Japan. Um, You know, this is an economy that, uh, you know, does suffer from excess competition. Um, You know, you've got uh, too many players, too many fragmented industries. And I think you will see whether it's in the chemicals industry, even in the financials industry, possibly even in the car industry, definitely in the car parts industry, you are going to see more consolidation coming through, which should imply that profit margins are not just going to benefit, you know, from the terms of trade effect, but are also going to benefit from integration uh, synergies going forward. And I, I think that that is so critical, Jesper, because if you, I, I'm sitting here on the other side of the ocean from you, and it's almost the exact opposite winds of change out of Washington, D.C. with respect to corporate America. You can almost feel Teddy Roosevelt coming up from the grave to do some trust busting in the United States. There's, there is concentration throughout Silicon Valley. There is political rhetoric from the left and the right to break up the tech giants, and there, there is that major difference between, say, the S&P 500 and MSCI Japan or, or, or an index like this, where there is much more uh, competitive spirit, I say you could say, in, in Japan, whereas in the United States, for example, um, you could see the, the, the small little uproars when, for example, inside of the last two weeks, there was the move for the number two and number three food delivery service companies, uh, Uber and Grubhub, to, to consolidate, and social media just blew up in outrage. Um, there's, a, there's a marginal propensity, I think you could say, in Japan, we started to see it in 2019. Maybe it dies here for a little bit in 2020, but for shareholder activists to really start swarming, right? The PE companies um, to really, really hit Tokyo with, with, with some force. Is this correct? No, absolutely. And, and that's the important point here. Um, you know, you've seen uh, some of the major private equity companies. I mean, Carlyle just raised another uh, $2.5 billion funds earmarked specifically for Japan. Um, you know, Japan's domestic largest private equity firm is a company called Advantage Partners. They've just raised an additional $1.5 billion new fund earmarked for Japan. Um, you know, so the uh, private equity side is now fully 
really embraced. You've got the government public uh, investment fund, the GPIF, uh, you know, earmarking a larger allocation to private equity. The Japan Post, uh, you know, which is another big asset manager that is modernizing, also earmarking a greater allocation to private equity. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm very, you know, the valuations, whether it's, you know, price to book, price to cash flow, price to you name it. Uh, you know, Japan is, uh, you know, the value um, champion of the world, um, but it has always lacked this catalyst. Um, and I think, you know, with the corona crisis, you know, cutting through those cultural norms, you know, uh, now the chairman, uh, the head of the Keidanwen, which is the biggest business lobby here in Japan, saying we've got to digitalize the bottoms-up decision-making process, you know, that's a cultural revolution, um, you know, that will benefit, um, you know, the private equity firms and more importantly, you know, for uh, investors to participate in Japan, I think that Coronanomics is the catalyst that will unlock the value trap here. Now, you, you still need economic growth. There's no question. You know, I still need to have growth of 4 to 5 uh, uh, to 6% in the People's Republic of China. I do need the United States economy to begin to normalize and to begin to, to stage its recovery. All this standard stuff I obviously need to see here. But the key point is that uh, you're exactly right. You know, so far we've had this activist 1.0 where mm -hmm. uh, particular U.S. activists came in and argued for higher dividends, greater share buybacks. Um, now you're going to get activism 2.0 uh, where there is actually going to be operational streamlining, divestitures, M&A activity, you know, and a greater concentration away from the super fragmentation that Japanese industry has come through. And as a result of that, I think you're actually looking at an earnings level uh, that structurally is going to be higher than what we've seen over the last decades. Yeah, I mean, Jeff and I have been talking a lot about dividend futures in the U.S. and sort of the expectations on where dividends are going to be. And you know, for a little while, they were predicting a record fall in dividends. They sort of rebounded with the market higher a little bit, but still, um, you know, 15 percent or more, I think, Jeff, was the latest dividend cuts that we saw this year. Yes, they, they've been doing actually it, it, it's sort of interesting. Japan was not known for high dividends, but the yields on, say, like an MSCI Japan are are considerably even higher than the S&P 500 now, um, maybe a little bit less buybacks, but but pretty nice return via dividends. How do you see them going next year on expectations for dividend actions? Look, I mean, the, 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 the facts speak, um, you know, louder than the hypothesis. I mean, you've seen very, very few dividend cuts, um, you know, here uh, in Japan. And, uh, you know, that part of the... Um, stakeholder and shareholder awareness and corporate managers actually following up on that. Um, you know, I think, you know, the dividends, you know, I think, you know, are probably going to be cut by between 5 and 10%, uh, you know, relative to last year when all is said and done. Uh, but that's going to still, you know, give you a dividend yield in the Japanese market of around 2.5, two uh, 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 so two and a half, two and three quarters, uh, you know, of a percent or thereabouts here. Now, what, what will happen 
happen um, is that, you know, the share buyback uh, yield, um, you know, that's likely to be dropping, uh, you know, quite considerably. I think last year the share buyback yield was, uh, you know, just uh, just a touch above uh, uh, one and a quarter percent of, uh, of, of the market. Um, you know, that dropping, uh, you know, this year to three quarters of a percent or something like that, I think is very, very likely. So dividends will stay in Japan. Japan wants to be so interesting. I, I actually had a, a discussion with somebody from the GPIF uh, uh, last week, and you know, he, he thinks that uh, his discussions with CEOs suggest that Japan wants to be the dividend champion of the world, right? So you know, so uh, I have high confidence on the uh, uh, on the dividends. The share buyback, uh, uh, you know, spark special situations. I think that that's probably going to take a little bit of a breather in 2020, but no doubt it's going to be back in 2021. Well, and Jesper, one of the things that I think is so critical is when you look at, at, at the difference between tangible book value and intangible book value. The United States is characterized by intangibles, the value of your brand, the value of goodwill, things that you cannot hold in your hand. Um, but both of these two have a tangible, the property, plant, and equipment, the physical cash that you can touch, $2.4 trillion U.S. dollars for both of them, except the U.S. stock market is valued at eight times the Japanese stock market. If I could liquidate... It literally liquidate Japan, I could come out ahead right now in this pair trade because it's been 30 years of, of a completely lopsided uh, market, hasn't it been? No, absolutely, and I mean that's that's always the fun part, you know, of uh, <laughs> debating the Japanese of debating the Japanese economy. I mean, you look at you know operationally and in terms of the mass production that is there, um, you know, Toyota, uh, you know, obviously is a, is a, is a much richer company uh, than uh, Elon Musk's uh, Tesla, um, you know. But then then again, you know, um, you know, the, the the unfortunately, you know, Toyota is 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 not doing a good job of selling the dream and uh, telling us, you know, convincing me what Toyota is going to look like in five or ten years time. And as a result of that, you're exactly right. Toyota's got all the tangible assets and can get the job done and actually produce 10 million cars every year. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but uh, you know, the, the, the appreciation for the market just isn't there. So I think, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, you know, from, from, from this uh, uh, crisis that we're going through all now, um, you know, is obviously... Uh, you know, a recognition that, uh, you know, there is value, um, you know, to the cash proposition. Um, you know, if this, as I suspect it is, um, you know, becomes the wake-up call for the inertia and, you know, the stubbornness and to some extent, you know, the laziness of Japanese corporate management, uh, you know, to actually adopt uh, new ways of doing business, um, you know, within the companies, unlocking the productivity potentials there by digitalizing uh, workflow uh, and uh, uh, you know workflows and processes, uh, particularly in the service sector, right? Um, and that uh, combined with uh, you know uh, activism 2.0, uh, you know where you get actual investments in uh, you know operational efficiencies uh, in terms of divestitures, in terms of you know uh, uh, buying in uh, some of the uh, subsidiaries. Then, you know, if that gets combined, then sooner or later uh, with, uh, you know, a, a renewed 
drive towards outward M&A. Um, you know, Japanese companies, you know, you know, very, very focused on non-China Asia. Um, you know, if you look at India, if you look at, uh, you know, any of the ASEAN countries, but it's India and Indonesia in particular, uh, you know, I think uh, over the next 12 to 15 months, you will see a large wave uh, of Japanese uh, buying of Japanese companies investing in size, um, you know, in uh, the ASEAN space. Very interesting. Um, we, it wouldn't be a Japan conversation, Jesper, if we didn't talk a little bit about what's going on in the currency markets and what's 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 happening there. Um, you know, I think that's one of the topics that I always dear to my heart of of people: should they have the yen? Should they not have the yen? Um, and uh, is there a difference between large caps and small caps on that story? Um, you know, we've been. I've often just said, should they they should just be neutral and and not really take yen risk because who knows what it's going to do. Uh, are you you know where do you think you know ultimately anything going on there in the market? Anything surprising? Uh, for a little while, the sort of correlation of the yen and a risk off it was starting to lose the risk off yen goes higher narrative for just a little bit. Um, you know, just curious what you're any anything you're hearing on what's going on in the yen. No, I mean, that, that was going to be, you know, you've, you've taken the words out of my mouth. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, anybody, uh, if, if, if I told you, you know, six months ago, we're going to have a crisis of this proportion, you know, you would have braced for dollar yen to go to 75 or 80, right? I mean, that massive risk off, uh, you know, is, is something that most people would have expected. And that hasn't happened. I mean, dollar yen has been one of the most boring currencies, you know, throughout this entire pandemic, basically stuck at the sort of, you know, one 107, 108, uh, uh, you know, very, very tight bent there. And I think that tells you two things. Um, it tells you, number one, that despite all the media about, oh, my God, it's America alone, it's America pulling out of the WHO and no global coordination, uh, the fact that dollar-yen is so incredibly stable actually tells you that there's an enormous amount uh, of coordination, uh, you know, certainly between Japan and the United States of America. And actually, if you look at the renminbi band um, as the sort of third major currency here in Asia, you know, the dollar, yen, renminbi triangle, you know, that's been remarkably stable throughout this crisis. And that suggests that policy coordination is actually very good. The second thing that has happened, um, you know, and you can show this empirically, um, you know, is that the capital outflows from Japan, whether it's the pension allocations, whether it's the insurance allocation, you know, actually into the United States uh, of America, has actually been picked up. And you may have seen that the GPIF, the uh, public pension fund, has actually increased its overseas, its non-yen bond allocation by a full eight percentage points, um, you know, since the 1st of April. So these capital outflows from Japan, you know, giving you a very, very nice cushion, um, you know, and a cushion of stability against the exchange rate um, is actually very, very positive. And if I'm right, and over the next six months, you're going to get more corporate activity, more corporate outward direct investment from Japan. That could actually tip the balance and actually give us a stronger dollar, maybe 112, 115, rather than the sort of, you know, uh, 95, 100 that everybody seems to be scared about. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I still try to get people not to bet on currency and just sort of be neutral, just buy the stocks when they're the cheapest in the world. But people still default to betting on the end. And, you know, perhaps it was a good risk off mitigator in the past and it sort of hedged their bet on Japan in the sense that the yen would go up 
stocks would go down and, and you you know, you had to believe to go hedge that you got to believe the yen is weakening. And that's the case to be in Japan in some ways, the best case to be in Japan. Um, but uh, people just haven't had that view recently. So it's interesting. Um, interesting to hear some of those views. Jeff, any, any points you're focused on? I would just say I, I keep coming back to these cash hoards and, and what we we're talking about 2.6-2.7% dividend yield, which is now a, a full half point higher than the S&P, which, which it, uh, amazingly um, is right back to where it started for all intents and purposes. And, the, and because of this furious rally, um, you know, the S&P dividend yield is only two. And there, there's this misnomer that I think was built up over so long that you couldn't get any yield in Japan because you couldn't do it in the bond market. But suddenly... You have a situation where, okay, broad cap weighted Japan is at 15 times forward earnings. Whether or not those earnings materialize is, is another question. Um, but the S&P is at 24 times forward earnings. So there's this margin of safety between your earnings yield in a nation like Japan compared to, to the much more thin margin of safety in the market darling, which has been U.S. equities for a decade. And I think that at some point, if we can get, whether it's a cultural change or whether it's a forced change at the hand of, of the activists that, that Jesper was pointing out, um, or whether it's buybacks or whether it's just as simple as, as getting the, the, the yen off the balance sheet, switching it into rupiah and, and buying some Indonesian equity, whatever it may be, um, I think these are all very, very positive catalysts for, for a, a switcheroo on, on the pair between the U.S. and Japan. Well, I think we've uh, we've talked for a bit of time here, Jesper. I thank you so much. Always a pleasure having you on the show, talking, uh, getting your take on what's going on. Uh, please stay safe out there, and we'll, we'll touch back as the economy is opening. Love to hear how things are developing there. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Sayonara. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.